about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. We've been working our way through part of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, for some time now, having picked up where we left off earlier in the year. I've said throughout this series that what happens in this part of the Bible is that we get to see the good news of Jesus from a different angle. It's like we're looking at a beautiful sculpture and we go around to another side and get to see it afresh. We get to see what the good news of Jesus is about from this strange vantage point of God's dealings with the people of Israel in the 6th century BC, two two and a half thousand years ago. Today, though, I need to say something more than that. Because in the passage we'll read in just a moment, and we're going to read it after a little bit of introduction, in this passage, talking about seeing things from a different angle isn't good enough. Because in this passage, we get to see things about the gospel that can actually only really be seen properly from this angle. Things that we couldn't know with the same clarity otherwise. It's not just a different angle we get here, it's a unique view. In this passage, it's, it's like we suddenly get a line of sight onto the very heart of the Christian faith, the beating inner core of the good news of Jesus. We get to understand things about Jesus that we could never understand so clearly without this passage. Even from his great distance in time, Isaiah shows us Jesus with a sudden, breathtaking clarity. So today, wherever you are at, wherever your journey in faith is at, I want to invite you with me onto holy ground to see a view of Jesus that is uniquely beautiful. Before we read the passage, though, I just want to introduce it a little bit. Because what we get in this passage is the answer to a troubling question, a problem that has been raised and that hasn't yet been answered properly in Isaiah. The problem is this. God has promised to save Israel. Okay, As we've talked about throughout this series, the situation that Isaiah is speaking to in chapters 40 to 55 is a situation of disaster. Disaster has befallen Israel. The empire of Babylon had come and destroyed Jerusalem and wiped out the, the, the kind of whole structure of the society and taken the people in, into captivity in Babylon, in exile. But now God promises to save them. This section begins with those wonderful words in chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people, 
says your God. God is going to save you. But the thing is, what God promises is to do the job properly. That is, he doesn't just promise to get them out of their current predicament and back to where they were before. No, God says he is going to really save them once and for all. He will finally break the injustice and evil that they have been bound up in for so long and that got them into this situation in the first place. The language that Isaiah uses for this, as we've seen throughout the series, is the language of God's coming righteousness. My righteousness draws near speedily, says the Lord. My salvation is on the way. God is going to do an act of justice, of righteousness, that means true, final salvation, and that can make Israel into a light to the ends of the earth. And here's where the problem is. How on earth is that supposed to happen? Because the thing is, Israel still seems to be just as sinful, just as broken, just as caught up in idolatry and unbelief and injustice as they ever were. Isaiah keeps having to bang on about the fact that they shouldn't worship other gods. Back in chapter 48, we hear of how Israel has been rebellious from birth and how they remain closed off to God's word and his grace. And so the question is, how are things going to be different? Right, because the plan is not just for God to forget about right and wrong now. It's not like the plan is that God will say, you know what, I, I give up. I'm, I'm done with caring about your sin. I tried that, it didn't work. How about we just not worry about it? No, God promises that he will save Israel precisely by being righteous, by bringing his righteousness. And so how is that supposed to work? How are things going to be different when Israel remains the same? How can the holy God save this people? And not by giving up his righteousness, but by being righteous. Now, before we press on, we should just notice that this is not just an academic problem. It's not just a puzzle about Isaiah or about Israel a long time ago. No, this is a live problem for us too. This is actually our problem as well. Because we, too, ought to be kind of troubled by the idea of God's righteousness. I think people often like to think of God as, as, as like a, a friendly, powerful uncle. Someone who really likes me and who can get me out of a fix when I need it, but who doesn't really care about my, what my life is like, who's willing to overlook a lot of things because he's just really fond of me. We think of God as like a kind of cheerful, benevolent power on our side. 
It's easy to feel good about a God like that. But that's not what God is like. That's just really not what God is like. The real God is much closer and much holier. He is the God of perfect righteousness, whose goodness goodness just burns up evil. Whose word is so true, it makes things exist. And so for us to come near that God, for him to come near to us, raises all sorts of uncomfortable questions because we aren't like that, are we? We, we say to ourselves that no one's perfect. That's true. It's also a way of grotesquely minimizing the problem. It's like watching a tsunami approach you and saying, we may get a little damp. Israel's problem ought to seize our attention as a a gripping, real problem for us as well. How can a holy and righteous God save us? Come near to us. How can we be okay in the end? We who are not just not perfect, but not good. We who are selfish, proud, fearful in all sorts of ways that are actually problematic, resentful and greedy. How can this holy God be good news for people like us. That was Israel's problem. And it's our problem. Okay, so what does Isaiah have to say about this? What's his solution? Well, over the last few chapters, if you've been with us, you'll know, we've started to hear that the answer will have to do with a figure called the servant of the Lord. A mysterious servant of the Lord will appear And somehow he will be the way God will do this. The way he saves Israel and finally changes things. The way he saves in righteousness. But how? How will this servant do this? Well, in our passage today, Isaiah 52 to 53, we hear the answer. It's an answer that we have had only hints of so far. Back in chapter 49, we hear unexpectedly that the servant will be despised by the nation. And then in chapter 50, we hear the servant, we heard the servant speak about being mocked and beaten. But they are only glimpses of the extraordinary, terrible, beautiful truth That comes into view now. Here is the answer to our problem, this passage. Here is how the Lord will save in his righteousness. The servant will suffer for the sin of others. The servant will stand in the place of others and take upon himself the punishment and consequences of sin, and that will change things. 
Now it's time for us to listen to the passage. Beck is going to come and read it. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin... He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors.
Thanks, Ben. That is a beautiful piece of poetry. Like with all art, it's sometimes dangerous to try to analyse it. Our best response may be just to sit with it, to repeat it and to admire it. But we can often appreciate art much more if we do understand it a bit. So without wanting to reduce the poem to a bunch of dot points, let me just point out the shape a little by observing four things this poem says about the servant. There is more we could say, but these four things will give us the shape of it. First, the poem teaches us that the servant of the Lord will be unexpected because he will be lowly, humble. Kings will shut their mouths we are told in chapter 52, verse 13, because it will not be like they expected. His appearance will put people off. People will be appalled. His appearance disfigured. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, verse 2. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The servant will not be beautiful. In the ordinary sense, he won't be impressive and grand. In fact, he will be like, like one from whom people hide their faces. Have you ever seen someone so disfigured it is hard to look at them? That's what the servant will be like. He will be someone used to dealing with pain with sickness. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. We didn't think much of him. That's what that means, we held him in low esteem. We didn't think much of him. We didn't really notice him. Our eyes passed over him. That's what the servant will be like. He will not be what life has led people to expect. Secondly, the poem tells us that this servant, this unimpressive, plain, desirable one, will suffer for the sin of others. I have to read from verse 4 again. Surely, Isaiah says, he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. People will think that this person is being rejected by God because of his own sins in the way that is so common to humans. We will think that this, this ugly, unpleasant person is just getting what he deserves. But the truth, the shocking truth, is that he is getting what we deserve. He took up our pain, verse 4. He was pierced for our transgressions, our crimes, crushed for our iniquities, our sins and mistakes. 
For the truth is, verse 6 tells us, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Hebrew word translated iniquity there is a word that, that means sin and all that follows from it. Our failures and the guilt and punishment they incur. The Lord has laid on him, the poem says, all our sin and all its guilt, all the mess and pain and injustice that we have brought into the world. In the third place, the poem tells us that the servant will be unjustly killed. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, verse 8. He was cut off from the land of the living and assigned a grave with the wicked, even though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This servant will be condemned and executed unjustly, for he will not have done any wrong. He will... He was not a violent man, nor a liar. But he will die in humiliation as a criminal, the victim of a perversion of justice. Fourth and finally, oh, I just remembered, my slide for this is mysteriously evaporated. So, but I'll just tell you what it said. Fourth and finally, the servant will triumph not despite, but because of his suffering. The poem tells us that in the end, the servant will triumph, and not in spite of, but because of what he has suffered. That's how the poem begins and ends. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, chapter 52, verse 13. And after he has suffered, we hear at the end, verse 11, he will live. I will give him a portion among the great, says God. And why? Verse 12, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The servant will triumph. He will be vindicated, glorified, because he gave himself in sacrifice for others. Here, Isaiah tells us, is the answer to the problem that has become so pressing, the problem of sin, of how a holy and righteous God can redeem his people without giving up his righteousness, without abandoning justice. Here is the answer, the servant. For the Lord, we read in verse 10, will make his life an offering for sin. That is a technical term there from Israel's system of sacrifice. The servant's life will become a sin offering, a sacrifice that turns away God's holy anger and removes the grievance of sin. And so through him, life will flow. My righteous servant, verse 11 says, will justify many. 
This is how God's righteousness will mean salvation, because the righteous servant of the Lord will justify many through his death. At the absolute bedrock foundation of the Christian faith is the conviction that these words in Isaiah speak of Jesus. That Jesus was and is this servant who suffered for the sins of others. Again and again, this passage is quoted and alluded to in the New Testament writings. Why is that? Why was it so clear to the earliest Christians that these words had been fulfilled in Jesus? Why? Well, partly it was amazing coincidences, like the fact that Jesus was given a rich man's tomb, like it says will happen to the servant in verse 9. But much more important than that, the reason the earliest Christians saw Jesus in these words is because Jesus saw himself in these words. It is written, said Jesus, again and again actually, but here it is from Mark 9, it is written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. Where is that written? It's written here. It is written, Jesus said, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus says this on the night that he was betrayed, the night before he died. He quotes Isaiah 53 and says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And then he says, and I tell you, that this must be fulfilled in me. And so when he stood before his accusers and before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, what did he do? He remained silent, resolutely silent. He did not open his mouth like a sheep before its shearers is silent. Because he knew, Jesus knew that this was his task. This was who he was called to be, the servant who, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth, was punished for the transgressions of God's people, whose life was made a sin offering, on whom the Lord would lay the iniquity of us all. Jesus knew this was him. He did it deliberately. The earliest Christians believed that Jesus was this servant because he believed it about himself unto death. But even that wouldn't have been enough were it not for one last thing, the crucial thing actually, that just as this poem promised, the servant who suffered was then lifted up and highly exalted. Jesus returned from life to life from the dead. And now the truth was inescapable. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied, Isaiah says. Yes, it had happened. Jesus is walking with two of his friends on the first Easter Sunday, and he says to them, how foolish you are. 
And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? They hadn't seen it before, but now they did. The Messiah had to suffer and then into glory. That's what Isaiah had said. And that is, is, is what had happened with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I hope you realize this is profoundly good news. It is the best news. It is the news that got Christianity going and that sustains it to this day. It is the news that filled the earliest Christians with unstoppable joy and courage and that can fill us with the same. Because it is the news that there is a solution to our problem, the problem of sin. And it's not a fake solution, but a real one. It's not a solution that is just spin or cleverness with words, moving words around so that the problem looks different. It's not just getting used to everything being awful. No, God has done something in Jesus that means our sin can actually be dealt with, has actually been dealt with, done with, defeated. It wasn't a pleasant solution. It's not a solution that flatters us or leaves us feeling particularly good about ourselves. No, it is a troubling, humbling solution. But it is that because our sin is not just a cosmetic problem. Our selfishness and our disregard for God and for one another, our pride, our violence, our lies, they can't be airbrushed away or just overlooked. God's holiness His righteousness is a real problem for us, for we are not fit for it. But in Jesus, the servant, God's righteousness has been revealed as salvation. For his life, his perfect, truly beautiful life was made a sin offering. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, and he bore it. He bore it all his life. As people ignored him, hounded him, opposed him. He bore it at the end. When all his friends abandoned him and the crowds laughed at him and the law failed him. And he bore it to the last as he was brutalized, flogged, spat on and hung to death on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. 
And by his wounds, we are healed. He bore it. And he finished it. So that you and I could be forgiven and justified. Stand right before God. And God's righteousness become our salvation. So just to finish, what do we do? What do we do in the light of this? We often want sermons to be practical, especially at the end, to end with application. I'm sorry to say, but in this case, we are not left with much to do at all. Because this passage is not about us. It's about him. We want to do something. We want to act. But the business has been taken out of our hands. We aren't the actors on stage anymore. We are only the spectators. In fact, there's only one thing in this passage that we are told to do. And it's right at the beginning. The very first word, in fact. See. See my servant, says God. That's the only job we have here, to look at him, to see him, to see him. This one who was so overlooked, who people didn't want to see, who as he hung on the cross, people averted their eyes, embarrassed, appalled, just like they do still today. And God calls us to look at him. Look at him. Look at him and shut our mouths in wonder at what we were not told, what we did not expect. See him, the beautiful one. And see what he has done and adore him. This is where Christian faith begins and it is where it stays. In seeing Jesus and seeing that his death is our salvation. And just letting that stop you in your tracks. We're about to share the Lord's Supper. There is no better way to respond than to come in faith and to eat and drink and to see him and let him be your saviour, your servant, your king. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.